Welcome to Dungeon Designers Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 4 of DDG Pod. We hope you agree that our first season is coming along quite nicely, with three excellent previous guests, and this episode will be no exception. For the first time, we welcome to the guild a designer of the TSR pedigree, who has contributed to all five versions of Dungeons and Dragons. He is not, however, here to discuss D&D, but rather a game he designed inspired by what today is undoubtedly one of the most popular universes in entertainment, and a system that, since its inception, has been considered nothing short of marvelous. So without further ado, let's get on to our main event. Today on Dungeon Designers Guild, we have encountered a man unlike any other, author of novels, comics, and some of Earth's mightiest role-playing games. On this day, we welcome Jeff Grubb. Jeff, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Pleasure to have you. And where in the marvelous multiverse are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Kent, Washington, which is a suburb just south of Seattle. I've been working at home for the past year, as many of us have, and uh, so I'm, in, I'm tucked into my little corner desk right now. Excellent. And uh, where where are you from originally? Originally, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. And what took you, I mean, obviously you, you had kind of a journey westward, right? Yeah, I've been actually going further west and north every time I move. My journey has been interesting in the fact that it's, you know, involved with, I'm a man uh, swallowed by his hobbies. And that's been the nature of my career. I am a civil engineer by training, graduate Purdue University. And at Purdue is where I started playing Dungeons and Dragons in 76, 75, 76. And I started with board games. So I started with the uh, American Heritage series from Milton Bradley. Dogfight, Broadside, Hit the Beach, Battle Cry, and Risk. And this was, you know, back when I was in grade school. And got into war games in the early 70s in high school. That would be Avalon Hill and SBI. I had a subscription to strategy and tactics, basically played games with friends. And so when I got to Purdue, I, they had a war gamer club. And I uh, showed up one day. And there were some people with tank miniatures, a couple of people with board games, and there was a group in the corner that was yelling at each other. And they didn't have a board and they didn't have miniatures. And they were just, you know, had pieces of paper. And I walked over and said, so what's going on? <laughs> and somebody put three six-sided dice in my hand and said, here, we need a cleric. <laughs> and it's all been downhill from there. <laughs> so uh, so I got involved in Dungeons and Dragons. I was running the Friday night group. It was the uh, dungeon you could bring uh, your girl, your girlfriend to. You know, it was, you know, well-behaved and everything. And we uh, played long amounts of D&D, well into the night. And I got involved in helping out with the D&D Open at Gen Con. This was when Gen Con had just moved to Kenosha. But we were running the, running the Gen Con, and one of my friends, after running uh, one of the Opens, basically said, we could do better than that. And he said it with an earshot of Bob Blake, who was running the Open. And Bob <laughs> spun on his heel and said, congratulations, you're designing next year's Open. And so we did. And um, I did a lot of, you know, a lot of work on it. I was a engineer briefly and I had been laid off. This was early 80s. And so I was corralling all the talent. And it was uh, three of us in Pittsburgh and Len Lakofka. And we all did adventures 
wrote them up and basically I got them in in like February before the, the convention was in August. So we got an early turnover. And on the strength of that, I was hired full time by TSR as a game designer. I was in old Hotel Claire downtown lake geneva and it was a it was a you know a crew of us we were on the third floor and this was zeb cook and tracy hickman and doug niles and myself and uh steve winter on the editing side and you know that we just moved to the new sheridan springs offices about six months after i got in and it was it was it was very nice you know so basically it was my starting position is starting as a, as a civil engineer and then growing up to build worlds for a living and that's sort of what I've my, my career path ever since I've been involved in a lot of creation, co-creation of you know fantasy worlds, Dragonlands, Forgotten Realms, Spelljammer, Alcadim, as well as licensed properties that belong to you know other people, and we basically are bringing into the role-playing community, which includes Marvel superheroes. Excellent. So you found yourself at TSR working with mm-hmm. fellow now legends, mm-hmm. maybe even at the time, very prominent. We names. didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you're at TSR and TSR, was it still, I'm sorry, was it still in Lake Geneva or was it in Milwaukee? It was still in Lake Geneva. It was never, Milwaukee is where we moved Gen Con to. Right. Okay. So it was you know, a few years in Kenosha and then to Milwaukee from there. The year before my first Gen Con, they had been in like the Playboy Club at the outskirts of Lake Geneva. Uh, Lake Geneva is a, a tourist community just north of the Illinois border. So in the summer months, it's crowded with everybody at the beach. In the winter months, it's kind of you know cold and snowy. And uh, it's a great place to get work done because nobody wants to go anywhere. <laughs> and you know we, we, had a, we had a good gang. The stuff that came out creatively from that period was absolutely fantastic. That's where, you know, Dragonlance got its start, Forgotten Realms got its start in that era. We started bringing out a lot of the TSR worlds. This was a really good period creatively, and one of the pieces was Marvel. Right, and so uh, how did Marvel come to be exactly? Marvel started in college for me. I told you I was running uh, D&D sessions on Friday nights and we just finished a big epic adventure. And rather than, you know, start something new, I'd been playing with a superhero game. I had read comic books when I was a kid. And then when I got into college, I started, I fell back into it. Comic books like Howard the Duck and the Star Wars comic license that Marvel had. And what I would do is I would get the comics and then I would mail them to my girlfriend, now my wife, and we courted over this. So basically I would send her, you know, the, the letter from college and there'd be a couple issues of Star Wars in there. But on the strength of that, and then I do some other people who read comics and we started generating a comic book game and it was called Project Marvel Comics PMC. And it was about a gang of the junior achievement branch of the Avengers. This was before the West Coast Avengers and all the other subgroups. So we were the first, you know, uh, a, an early uh, branch operation. And it was based in West Lafayette, Indiana. So a lot of, so we got to blow up a lot of local, you know, landmarks and, you know, it had a random roll table for, for its characters. So we had characters like Carl, the fire breather and big man on campus uh, and my, uh, the beacon uh, who could basically had a, such a shiny forehead, he could basically, you know, for, focus uh, laser rays, uh, laser beams on it. And uh, my favorite was a super pin who was the pro bowler of steel and rode around on a giant bowling ball. Wow. Okay. And, you know, we ran it for a semester and they, they fought like all sorts of, you know, villains of uh, the Marvel universe that would, you know, were hiding in Lake Geneva. And I'm sorry, was hiding in West Lafayette, Indiana. And at the end of it, they uh, went to New York where they were going to, you know, meet the mayor and fight Spider-Man. And they ended 
ended up meeting Spider-Man and fighting the mayor. So because it was a good thing. And I had, you know, basically also was running for my uh, friends back in Pittsburgh at this time. And so we had had a group there as well. So I had two different gaming groups that I was basically bouncing the things off. And this is where we started with Marvel. And Marvel originally in Marvel, the stats uh, are also referred to as phase rip. It's called a phase rip because it was fighting agility, strength, endurance, reason, intuition, and psyche, I believe. But originally, fighting was fatigue, and the RIP was cosmic magic and technology. So those were my categories. Those were basically how I was defining the various superheroes. And we were modeling uh, very, you know, Spider-Man or all, all the Marvel superheroes. And this was the game where the concepts started. And we go on. We're playing more D&D. I go to work for TSR, and they're asking us for our looking for ideas, blue sky ideas. They were like, okay, what are we going to do next? You know, they asked us for a whole bunch of, you know, like standard, like if you're going to give us three beginner modules, what will they were? Three intermediate modules, three boot hill modules. And so we generated a whole bunch of paper on that. And they asked, what would you do if you had, you know, the ability to do anything? And they, people were pitching ideas back and forth. And my first pitch was actually a cyberpunk game that was uh, so dark and gritty, it sort of like ate its way through the bottom of the file cabinet and they weren't going to touch it. (laughs) And they came back and they said, what else you got? And I had this, Project Marvel Comics, and I was talking about a, a comic you know, a game, and they said, okay, that's that's interesting. We might do something, you know, create a new world for that, you know, that sort of thing. And about that time, they had published the Gen Con program book for that coming convention. And this would be, I joined in 82. This would be at like 83 or so. Uh, the game came out, first basic set came out in 84. They, and in the program book, there was an announcement from Mayfair Games, one of our competitors, that they have the Marvel superheroes license and they're going to do a Marvel Heroes game. And suddenly my management paid up and they, they called up uh, Marvel and said, hey, you got a license with this game company called Mayfair? And Marvel said, no. But we'd be interested if you want to do get a license with us. So we got the license for Marvel superheroes, which was great. And we started working on the design proper for this time. And during this time, one of the cornerstones of the Marvel game was the Universal Table. Uh, on the back cover of the two booklets that you get in the uh, in the box set, there's this you know multicolored green, yellow, red combat results table. And that's what it comes from. It comes from the old CRTs from SBI and Avalon Hill. And it basically brought over as opposed to doing a calculation or you're looking at numbers on a, on a, on a matrix. It's a very simple and straightforward method of determining your level of success. So that's one of the components that made Marvel very good. So basically we were looking at a game that to break into get a new audience, not sell it necessarily to the same group that was playing, you know, D&D, but sort of, you know, take that group and expand out on it. And at this time was, you know, out in the real world, was a time when comic books were expanding as well with a direct sale marketplace. It used to be, you know, you'd go to the local drugstore, you could buy the comics, and you know, they were there every month, you know, that sort of thing. Well, the direct sale market, basically, they were working through a distribution channel like magazines. In the direct sale comic books, basically, they, the shop got the comics directly from the printer. So it cut out a middleman, and it was a you know way of basically making sure that you had all the comics that you needed and you didn't get shorted and that sort of thing. There's a lot of backstory for this. So this was a time when comics was really changing as a, uh, as a as a business, so this was an area that we wanted to you know see if we could you know get into. And Marvel superheroes was one of those role playing games that got into the comic book shops 
early when we're just starting out and it's proved to a lot of owners that yes, role-playing games will work. So now a lot of comic shops do carry role-playing games, D&D, all the rest. But back in those days, it was a new thing. And this was, you know, a, a new experiment and it worked out, which was really cool. But backing up to the design of the game. So by this time we were in Sheridan Springs Road and I think I went through oh, maybe a half dozen universal tables. I would come up with one and I would lay it out and Zeb Cook, who was one of our older designers at the time, would look at it and, and point out the flaws and where we where it was going to, you know, where it wasn't, wasn't going to work and hey, it was, this doesn't function well at the high end, etc. And so we'd go back and forth and I'd keep redesigning and there were different drafts that I came up with before coming up with the version that you see on the back of the covers. And again, from the idea of simplification, while there were numbers attached to your various abilities, it was in categories. It was, you know, poor, fair, typical, good, excellent, I'm trying to remember by memory now, uh, remarkable, incredible, monstrous, unearthly, shift zero, shift 100. You know, we had a whole bunch of, you know, like categories that they could, we could slot them in, which allowed us to model the Marvel Universe without having to definitively say, yes, the Hulk is stronger than the thing. You know, we, we know in general categories where they fall in, but, you know, uh, there's a one classic Defenders Avengers battle where Thor and uh, Hulk got into a fight and they spent the entire comic book holding on to Thor's hammer. And they didn't do anything else in the fight. They just fought against each other because they were so evenly matched for that type of thing. And so the categories were a great way of being able to model the characters of the Marvel Universe. And and so again, it's a, it's a simplicity thing. It helped with you know bringing people in and not not scaring them off with too much math. So that's a nice you know a nice component as well. And now this is and this is a very important step at this point. As we do the design, deadlines are coming up. We want to get it into print. We want to basically get it out. So Steve Winter as the editor came on board also as co-writer so i would be doing design work and then he would be basically doing the pitch as far as you know how the rules are presented and a lot of people think that you know it's jeff he's, he's doing the whole stand the man thing you know face front true believer that was steve and he did an incredible job. Marvel was as good as it was that first one we did because of Steve Winter. And I'll note, he's a good person to talk to as well because he has been involved in gaming longer than I am. He's been connected with so many projects at TSR, at Wizards of the Coast. Now he's working with Frog God Games, but he is a very good writer. He's a very good editor. He's my DM on Monday nights. So we, we still see each other. But I have to say, Steve Winter was one of the keystones of this uh, coming together. And that's one reason we list ourselves as co-creators in the uh, in the credits, because he made the language accessible, he made it understandable, and he took a, a role-playing game as a rather you know complicated creation and putting it into a terms that people could understand it fairly easily that weren't coming from this war gamer, miniature gamer, role-playing gamer background, I think is one of the great things about the game. So I, I agree big plug entirely. for Steve. Big, big, big plug for Steve. So. And that, again, that appeals to something way back at the dawn of time when I did the Project Marvel comics at Purdue. There weren't a lot of those superhero games. This was the late 70s. Villains and Vigilantes showed up in 79. Mm -hmm. Champions showed up in 81. Marvel superheroes arrived in like 84. So and Palladium, of, had like, this, Palladium had a superhero game. And I'm not sure the year. Heroes of Unlimited or something? Heroes Unlimited. Okay. They're actually, they were, the first one was like Superhero 2044. Okay. 
was like the old oldest one that I remember, and that was like oh gosh, mid seventies, seventy seven, seventy eight maybe. But that was you know that was that was quite some time ago. I don't know if, if when Heroes Unlimited and Heroes Unlimited had the Palladium game had that, and they also had a Ninja uh, Teenage Ninja uh, Mutant Turtle supplement as well, which did very well for them. So it's important for the standpoint that uh, V&V was a very was a simple game, was a relatively simple game. Jeff D. Jack Herman. It continues on as Mighty Protectors, which is out now. So it has a long storied past and it had a cute methodology of figuring out what your stats were and then using that as a base for creating your character, your superhero. So you could basically take your, you know, how much you can lift and basically transform that. And that was pretty much more popular in the Midwest and the East, whereas the West Coast was very much Champions, which was a very complex game. The idea of, you know, we're, we're going to run three combat turns tonight. Okay, you know, and that's going to be pushing it. The min-maxing, this is where I first encountered the idea of basically trying to, you know, build the perfect build. This is long before computer games because of all the different advantages and disadvantages you could take, basically, you know, to craft your, your ultimate brick and that sort of thing. So it was a complex game, and we knew we didn't want to do that with Marvel because it occupied its space. But Marvel had a lot of accessibility. Mm-hmm. It had the universal table. It had a karma system, which was a spendable experience point. Now, this has existed elsewhere. An early draft is in Top Secret by Merle Rasmussen, where he had hero points, and you could use a hero point to, you know, get a reroll or demand a, you know, a favorable result, that sort of thing. And a karma was a little more complex than that in the fact that you could accumulate karma and basically not just from heroic actions but from life actions, and then spend the points to make your die rolls or to you know get that you know ultimate you know power boost that you need and that fit in with how marvel comics work i mean because again this is mid 80s and comics have that whole you know spider-man has to you know basically get home in time for aunt may's uh, birthday but here comes the kangaroo who's going to stop him these were the uh the sort of stories that we were embodying and, and simulating one thing i really liked some comics i really liked when I was reading comics back then was Marvel Team-Up and Marvel 2-in-1. And the Marvel Team-Up was Spider-Man and some hero you've probably never heard of. And the 2-in-1 was The Thing and some hero you may not have heard of. So you basically, they used it as a place to launch new heroes and to keep the trademark on characters who have been you know around for a while. And you know characters would show up and you know the first time you've seen them and okay what's his backstory where does he come from that sort of thing. And they were well written comics, but uh, that was that sort of team up type thing fit in with the type of mentality we were going with in Marvel. Maybe I should try that with some of my episodes. You know Jeff Grubb and some dude. <laughs> <laughs> Fight to the finish, you know. So that raises the question. Well, I have 616 questions for you. Go for it. <laughs> Before I forget some of them, did Mayfair end up making a superhero game? Yes, they did. They okay. made the DC Heroes game. They went over nice. to the Distinguished Competition, and Greg Gordon was the design primary designer on that. And they used an exponential scale for being able to capture the range that goes from, you know, the Teen Titans to Superman. And they had like a three by three grid of related abilities. It was it was a more complex game, but it was very good. I thought well of it. I actually wrote a positive re- uh, review of it in Dragon Magazine. I, I think I, I said, you know, it's a powerful new entry to the field. It's good to see other people designing. It's wonderful. Uh, Mayfair put out an ad that basically says, powerful. 
Jeff Grubb, Dragon Magazine, you know, and (laughs) my management hauled me down and said, did you say this? And I said, yes, I did say this. Here's where I said it. And I said, don't do that again. Okay. (laughs) Were they not publishing Dragon or was that, was that Paizo already? No, no, no. That was, that was TSR. Uh, TSR was publishing Dragon, but they They just didn't didn't know I had, they did not, the part, the magazine department has a level of, had a level of independence from the main part of the, they were the same building, you know, but they didn't always know what was going on and they wouldn't have known unless if uh, Mayfair hadn't put out an ad. So it was pretty gutsy of them to put out an ad for Marvel when they didn't have, they had never contacted Marvel or at least. Well, they they put out an ad for that. They put out an announcement that they had Marvel without having gone. Yeah. They probably were talking to some other part of the company at that point. Okay. They also did, at one point, a Marvel superheroes calendar. They got the license for that. They didn't get the license for the RPG, but they did get it for the calendar. And they reprinted the calendar numbers. They didn't do a new one. They reprinted it from, like, 1972, because calendars, you know, renew. Right. But the 72-73 calendar that they, they were pulling from had a lot of jokes about Dick Nixon. <laughs> So it's 14 years later, it's 86 or so. And basically there's a lot of Dick Nixon jokes in the, uh, in this new calendar from, from, uh, from Mayfair. So it's, it's a screwy business in many ways. Um, What can I tell you? Oh, other thing from mechanic area movement. Mm -hmm. Again, that was a very simple, straightforward hexes, squares using area movement helped us again by making it as simple as possible. We made foldups, a little triangular miniatures with all the characters we had and we sold you know collections of those as well that were basically you could use instead of miniatures because you know we didn't have miniatures at the time tsr did two and a half two large boxes one small box of marvel miniatures with our nascent miniature organization we that was in another building up near the uh, sheridan springs office and that was you know an attempt to you know basically do some miniatures for it but they went with paper miniatures which were easier to produce we you know could you know do a lot of them and that worked out nicely as well we had a little you know uh, almost like a champions like uh, in champions you had like a shadow figure mm-hmm. of a character and then you could basically you know color in your superhero and we use that same type of methodology for for the different characters so we didn't have to generate a huge amount of art we basically just had to finish up a lot of stuff so so you had mentioned working on the table which i believe mm-hmm. is genius and i wanted to talk more about that how different mechanically was the print version from the table you had pioneered for your college group were there significant differences there yeah, the original group started out at the beginning of the season with, you know, just, again, a number calculation. Uh, I mentioned that we didn't have fighting. We had fatigue. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of like, uh, we use that as a part of your hit point, your health calculation. It got a little cumbersome. And so we basically simplified down to a, a simple table. And that became the uh, the first universal table. And I had like, oh, I think I had like a success fail version, just, you know, two colors as opposed to the four, as it is four colors in the uh, table. Mm-hmm. I had different categories, different origins. You had to get one table if you were a robot and another table if you were an alien. And that all, you know, fell by the wayside as we, you know, as we play tested and simplified things out. Okay. And so even in its uh, proto form, it already had this table that, that had been inspired by the CRTs. Yeah. Old war game, what you see in Blitzkrieg and D-Day and, you know, all these old Avalon Hill games. It's an interesting thing. The um, Purdue University, our war gaming club, also uh, the local hobby 
movie shop was run by a guy named John Hill, who designed Squad Leader. So we did playtesting for that as well. So that was a man-to-man World War II game where, you know, you were you were basically moving moving around through house-to-house fighting, that sort of thing. And that, you know, again, the old CRTs, the old mechanisms basically continued on when we did Marvel. Okay. And so at the time, I know that, you know, the phase rip became very influential to some of the other games that TSR was printing, but at the time, were they printing anything like that? Or was that kind of the first universal table that TSR worked with? I think that was the first universal table. We did Indiana Jones, Conan, those were Zeb's designs and a version of Gamma World. Those all came later that basically looked at the universal table content as a methodology. We had a group of designers that peeled off off and formed their own company called Pacesetter. And mm-hmm. they did like Star Ace and Chill. Chill was their most successful. And they used a, a universal table as well. But uh, yeah, we that I believe, I could be corrected on this. That was the first time we kind, we used it. And part of it was we put it on the back cover because that's where we had color. You know, uh, books today, kids today. <laughs> books today have, uh, you know, full color press all the way through. But, you know, we had an accent color mm-hmm. if we were lucky. When we got to the advanced set, we could put one of the book had like blue highlights and one had red uh, highlights but in general you know the color was on the covers and as opposed to creating a separate sheet or you know trying to you know widget it around we ended up uh, being able to take advantage of that back cover for uh, a four color press a lot of the books that you know watsi puts out are are color there's a lot of books that were oh, yeah. you know, that, that the style is definitely returning for probably similar reasons of you know mm-hmm. uh, to have black and white all through the middle so you said uh, that some designers left and started pace setter was that after mm-hmm. phase rip had been printed no that was while phase rip was un- under design under when marvel was under design okay and did you guys call it phase rip at the time or have we just no. started calling it that in retrospect as a system we call it phase rip now but at the, and at the time yes i did go with reason intuition psyche because i wanted to have it spell something out it's like shield but we did not refer to it as the phase rip system i had wondered about that because i see it referred to as phase rip online and my group we've been playing it for a few weeks now refers to it as phase Mm -hmm. rip and i wasn't sure if that was ever terminology used by tsr Uh, the system is available to use though now right somehow it ended up in the ogl what phase rip yeah because there's it's kind of gray (laughs) okay Here's the thing. Of course, all the characters are copyright trademark of Marvel Comics. That's part of the deal. I created a super villain for an Alpha Flight adventure called Cascade, and they own him. They probably don't know they own him, but they own him. So that would probably be one of the most obscure Marvel characters right now. But we put in, uh, TSR put in that, that the game design was copyright TSR. So that's what it says in the legal statement. So the whole question of who owns you know Marvel after all this time is sort of kind of like up in the air. So people could say, hey, do you, you know, we, we want to, you know, redo Marvel. Can we get your permission? And I, I don't have permission. I don't own it. Who does? Well, TSR does to a great degree, which means Watsy, which means Hasbro. So that's where, you know, what I'm, I'm looking at when people, you know, come up and say and ask me about, you know, uh, ownership of the property. And the thing is, as people go forward and they create their own versions, and there is a very successful, you know, RPG phase rip community with a couple different, you know, versions out there, they're going to make changes. They're going to change the design. They're going to take it and make it their own. And I think that's a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so that is going on. So I just assumed 
assumed that because that was happening, I guess it must be in the OGL. I was a little confused by yeah, that. I'm not sure if uh, this is something I don't know. I, I'm not okay. sure if the OGL covers the non D and D games. There seems to be an assumption to that effect, but I don't know. I haven't, you know, ever seen anything to that that effect saying that if, if it's an old TSR game, it's OGL'd. Because there's a like there's a website that's classic Marvel Forever that just has mm-hmm. all the phaser build, and they have stats yes. for characters that didn't exist yes. at the time. So. Yes, I think that's I think that's wonderful. I, I I really you know enjoy seeing what people are coming up with as far as the, the game is concerned. And like I said, it's been 35 years, and people are still playing it, and people are still enjoying it, and they're getting their kids involved. And this is a good thing. I mean, this was also a period when the official handbooks of the Marvel Universe started up. So the uh, the hot moves. These were books that were just the character, his abilities, his, you know, allies, and his story. And they had, you know, they ranged from, you know, Captain America, who has a, you know, big, long entry, down to... Angar the Screamer, you know, just you know, very esoteric characters that you may never see again. They did an, uh, the Ahatmu, and then they did a deluxe version of it with even more stuff. But back when we were doing the design was about the time that the official handbook started up. So we're working through the characters and we're using that as part of our Bible, though we're ahead of them. So we don't know exactly where the stat levels are for the end of the alphabet. So we're, you know, we're, we're winging it as we go along. Excellent. And as far as the, again, using a universal table, was there ever any discussion of maybe we should try this in D20? No, we did have in first edition, we had tables. We had a matrix go back into the, I don't know if it's in the player's handbook or the DMG. You actually go back to the original game. There's a matrix mm-hmm. of the number you needed to hit and what saving throws were versus your level against the type of spell. So we've had that type of thing in the games before, but never a, a resolution table of the type that we came up with for Marvel superheroes. Right. So like back in original D&D, there's like original success D&D. tables for skills for rogues and stuff like that, thieves. There was at one point, like I'm saying, in AD&D first books were like the matrix of, you know, if I've got armor class of X and I'm level Y, I need to get a 17 or better for example. And then they were tailored along the four major classes. That's one reason, you know, one thing that pressured you to have subclasses as opposed to totally new classes. Or we would say that, you know, this character attacks like a cleric and then it would use the cleric table. Okay. But obviously you wanted something that was easier to use and what you ended up designing with Phase Rip is sophisticated and scalable but easy to understand. And I think that is beautiful in game design. Were there any other role-playing games that inspired the final design? I know Chaosium would have had their BRP system out at the time. Was that a consideration at all? BRP, I think, was later, actually, because Superworld was the name of their... Right. Well, they had RuneQuest. I don't think they were calling it BRP yet, but RuneQuest came out in the late 70s, if I'm not mistaken. And unless that was on a different system initially, I think it was yeah. percent. Actually, Superworld was 83. Oh, so, really? Yes. Originally, for basic role-playing, Chaosium had BRP as its sort of engine, mm-hmm. and it was going to use it for horror and for superheroes and for fantasy. Uh, RuneQuest, Call of Cthulhu. So you can see it, its fingerprints all over it. So Superworld was one of theirs as well. I 
for some reason, I thought like Super World was after Phase Rip, but and that didn't factor in though to your design because your design was coming from what you had been working from in college, which came from wargaming. I stole from myself. Yeah. Okay. I was just always curious about that because TSR hadn't been doing games that were entirely D percentile. The percentile dice are all you need for this game. Well, that's true, but they had done percentile dice games. I want to say uh, Empire of the Petal Throne, one of the first ones, seventy six or so, which is a great fantasy world to take a look at. Use percentiles for abilities. Top Secret used percentiles, if memory serves. Yes, Top Secret was a 10-sided dice game. Okay. The interesting thing with uh, BRP is you can see D&D-ish fingerprints on it Mm -hmm. in the fact that your abilities tended to be 3D6 or 2d6 plus 6. Again, it was uh, operating off the same general range that the early D&D did as well. So that was, I think, an influence of it. Right. And that's something that struck me. And one of the things that kind of led me to this is, I, you know, I'd played D&D almost exclusively for years. You know, we dabbled mm-hmm. in 7th C and we dabbled in this or that. But oh, yeah. It was pretty much just D&D the whole time. And part of it, I think, is a lot of people don't want to try something outside of D&D because they're afraid it's going to be just too complicated to try to reorient to a new rule set. I started playing Delta Green. Yes. Which is awesome. And I was struck by, oh, this is very familiar. Mm-hmm. BRP, you just use the D percentile, but it looks a lot like a D&D character sheet. Well, like I say, BRP has, has its roots in D&D of the era. So because that's, you know, that's the foundation a lot of people built off of. A lot of people had created their fantasy games. And this is how we're going to fix D&D. I mean, for the basic role playing, the originals was in 1980. Right. Part of RuneQuest. And what one thing that was a thing in the 80s was universal systems. Uh, GURPS. Yep. Uh, <laughs> generic universal role playing system, you know. GURPS. BRP, you know, this was the idea of you create a system, which then you could move around. So someone learns your system and then they can play any number of games and therefore you can sell any number of genres. Whereas there is enough difference between AD&D and Boot Hill, Star Frontiers. They've got a lot of, you know, familiar components top secret in you know here are your abilities here's how you use them here are here could be skills you know that might be something that gets added in brp they had a lot of licenses like elf quest and ring world and you know good stuff but you know they, you discovered quickly that they had to take things apart ignore certain mechanics you know stress other mechanics because the licensor genre had that level of demand a sanity checks in call of cthulhu mm-hmm. is a cornerstone of that but doesn't belong to to the other BRPs. Champions and the hero system, they uh, have like applied to Fantasy Hero and they've done other things for it. The Iron Crown and their Ice Law, you know, uh, Iron Crown Enterprises and their um, uh, Spell Law and Arms Law and Iron Law and all these other types of things. Oh, one big unified system that you could all fit together. I don't think that's ever really worked. I think you could take the core mechanics like D20 from uh, 3rd Edition and do D20 Modern or do a Star Wars game. But it changes as a result of moving on to other genres because you're taking the mechanic but you're changing uh, what the numbers mean and what the abilities are in order to make it you know fit. D20 Modern doesn't have the traditional fighter wizard cleric type of breakdown of occupation as defining your various abilities but rather we went with a strong hero tough hero charismatic hero we basically said these are heroes that basically are coming out of their abilities right even though it's the same abilities they're structured around the ability score right as opposed to a class that implies an ability score like exactly fighter implies strength now as an example there you used d20 modern and d20 star wars and you worked on both of those games right I did work on both. 
uh, I had left TSR and went freelance. Gosh, I don't even remember what it was for a few years. And during that period is when Wizards of the Coast bought TSR. And everybody moved out, and it got lonely in Lake Geneva. And I was out here for a wedding, and I visited uh, Wizards of the Coast, was talking to Phil and saying, so, you interested in hiring me back? And he said, sure. And he reached in his pocket, he gave me a job offer. And I came back, worked on D20, worked on Star Wars, worked on you know, a number of projects, you know, some of which worked, some of which didn't. That's but, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that you didn't go with the, with the crew. No, I was not part of the crew. I was working with Margaret Weiss and her group Mag Force 7 on collectible card games during that period. Interesting. As, okay. As well as writing some novels for TSR slash Wizards of the Coast, including the relaunch of the Magic the Gathering books. Right. I, I know that you had you had worked on some of those. And uh, where was where was Margaret's company based? Was it in Wisconsin? Yes, in Williams Bay. At the time, we also had a game store in downtown Lake Geneva called the Game Guild, which was an old men's clothing shop. And you had woodworking all over the which was really kind of cool and we had the uh the ground floor in the basement and we played you know games vampire uh jihad the eternal struggle down the basement and had computer games set up and this was during the time when watsi was uh buying uh a tsr I mean, we, we, we had a mob out there of uh, creatives in a very small town that was geared toward not what we were doing. Right. You know? So with when you started at TSR, mm-hmm. was Gary already gone at that point? Gary had gone to the West Coast at that point. My first office in the Hotel Claire was at one time Gary's office, at one point Dave Sutherland's office. And he had moved to the new Sheridan Springs building. So I got that uh, that place. The Hotel Claire was this. Literally, we couldn't hold like meetings in any one room for fear that the building would fall over. They did <laughs> renovate it in such a way that you know it would have cost less to tear the entire thing down and build an exact duplicate. So they did a very fine job on Riga. But the first floor was the dungeon hobby shop. The second floor was where art and like the RPGA was. The third floor was when I was there was was design and editing. And the uh, the basement they had a bowling alley, but they used that for storage for uh, for the dungeon hobby shop. And it was right on the main corner of downtown Lake Geneva, which is like three stoplights long. <laughs> so so this was the the main north south road cross the main east-west road and that that was the dungeon hobby shop at the time okay so did you uh, you obviously at some point in your life met gary yes. i would take it right i worked with him on unearthed arcana and monster manual 2 for first edition first so he was still he was still active yes we had we had set up a, a west coast operation and he had gone gone west, and that was going to be handling the D and D movie and television opportunities. He had his creative his creative group out there. Frank Menser was sort of his representative in the design department back in Lake Geneva. But I worked with Gary on a couple of the hardbacks, and it was very much, you know, given his time and demands, it was often, you know, like I would ask all of these esoteric, detailed questions, and he they sent him down a couple of days later, it would come back with notes like, you know, it works this way because of magic. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy that. <laughs> Excellent. So, okay. So you did overlap. Yes. And he came back. Uh, you know, I mean, it was the, the company was the Bloom brothers, Kevin and Brian and Gary. So that, that's again, backstory type stuff. But, uh, you know, they sold the company, they moved the company. I don't know if the building is even occupied anymore in the Sheridan Springs area. Everybody relocated. Everybody had a Watsy buddy. You know, a member of the Watsi team was assigned to a TSR person to, you know, be the person that, you know, basically to help them get settled and get set up. They brought in moving vans. One of my one of my colleagues, uh, basically, they were unloading his van and they held up a staff, you know, a wizard staff. And, and the guy, the guy moving says, 
what is this? <laughs> and Rich Baker, I think, was who uh, said, well, that's, that's a wizard staff. We do fantasy games. Here. I've moved five of these today already. <laughs> <laughs> you all have wizard staffs? <laughs> so, uh, uh, the, but, uh, you know, and they relocated. It was, you know, it, one of the, the first winter they were here, it snowed here. And everybody who's a native Seattleite stayed home because it snowed. And we have like eight plows. And everybody from Wisconsin, we showed up for work. Yep. So I, I shouldn't say we because I wasn't there yet. I was still out in Lake Geneva. I got married about six months into my job of, I want to make sure I could, you know, hold down the job, but I was flying out of Chicago. I had to, you know, drive from uh, Lake Geneva to Chicago to catch the plane and a snowstorm rolled in and all the bosses were on the West coast and out of communication. So no one had permission to leave the building early. So they're watching the snow build up. I did because I had already taken vacation time so I could drive to Chicago. So I'm driving ahead of the storm while everybody else is stuck in the in the building because nobody had the authority to send anybody home. You know, we, we were a young company. We were, you know, we were making things up as we went along. Quite literally. I mean, that was, that was kind, of, kind of the point. Yeah. So if if we could if you if you if we could get back Let's into Marvel. Back. <laughs> <laughs> so during the production of, of of the game did you have much contact with Marvel directly yourself? Yes. Uh, the relationship with Marvel was absolutely great. Literally I be I calling them once twice a week often for art orders. They had at the time now nowadays everything's on computer but at the time they had a warehouse in Jersey where that held all of the black and white stats of their comic books. So if I needed a picture of Captain America from issue 103 could basically call that in they would basically send somebody over to Jersey, they would make a stat of the, of the photo stat of the original page and they would send it to us. So we got a lot of original art in the game, especially the advanced version, that basically as a result of being able, and you know, character stand-ups and the official handbook of the, of the Marvel Universe stuff, all of that worked out really nicely and the uh, working relationship was really good. Though I'll be honest, occasionally the uh, phone call lines got crossed with an adult phone service, so you'd hear moaning in the background and there'd be there'd be there'd be there'd be, there'd be extra sounds so in the old days lines got crossed you know and basically you'd, you'd hear the, hear this you know it's like someone's watching porn in the background and i'm like, I'm like do you have a radio on no no we're fine can i call you back <laughs> Uh, and I've been to Marvel a couple of times and, you know, we got approvals through the various uh, writers and editors. This was a period where the editors were, you know, important as far as, you know, a major, you know, how, how their lines went and how they developed. So it was it was a it was a good working relationship. I have when we were working with them, it was very positive. One thing we did later this is after I moved on to other projects, were the gamers' guides to the Marvel Universe. And we thought, aha, they have generated the official handbooks, right? So we have all that text, and we have all that art. All we have to do is add game stats, and we're ready to go. So we did, we call them phone books, because they were the size of the Lake Geneva phone book. They were hundreds of pages, and three hole punched, so you could put them in a, a ring binder, if that's in a trapper keeper, if that was, was your way of thinking. But what we discovered, after we pitched the idea and made it happen, that they did have it on computers. So we input all of the text from the official handbook of the Marvel Universe so we could use it and then we gave it back to them. So nice. All right. 
Okay. And so in in the first printing, um, there was no character generation. Is that correct? Uh, limited in the back. There was a feeling that, you know, in the initial book was you're playing Marvel superheroes. You should be playing Marvel superheroes. We don't want you to, you know, mess around with it. So we did that. And we did put a very minor character generation system in the back, but we did push the idea of, hey, you're playing Spider-Man, you're playing, playing. And when we got to the advanced set, which was only two years later, one thing that Marvel told us was, whatever you do, you're going to put a character generation system in. And we said, yes, of course. <laughs> so, and again, pulled those out from my old system as well and, and dinked around with it. Oh, so that was actually a decision made on the TSR side to push like you're playing an established character. It was my understanding that it was a, a decision from Marvel side and we did it for the Indiana Jones game as well. Oh, but they changed their minds and decided that, you know, the character generation was an obvious necessity. But after the success of the basic set and, you know, we, we felt that, okay, that now we can, when we did the advanced set, the more involved, complicated, we got a lot lot more uh, character generation move to the front okay in the character generation i mean you could go through and, and pick your powers but the right. system calls for random powers right yes i love random powers well i love them in villains and vigilante which had the greatest power ever which was cephalopod control you controlled squid you controlled squid and octopi but you know okay <laughs> so Okay, so the inclusion of random powers, was that also your call? Yes, because what we did was we had a couple different versions. We had a, a pick ability. We had a simulation ability where you say, this is this character, and you compare him against you know, Captain America and Spider-Man. Is it okay if he's tougher than Spider-Man? Yeah. Okay, so we basically raise his endurance a little bit higher, that sort of thing. So it's a modeling version. And then there is a random generation where you had an origin, and basically you could you know put the grab bag of your superpowers. Because I had that back in when I was in college. That's how we ended up with Carl the fire breather. He had a power. It was breathing fire. Okay. <laughs> in our game, we weren't sure what to do. We were hemmed and hawed and one guy's just like, we're going to do random powers. And it's like, okay. And I got thermal vision and I'm like, eh, <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, exactly. Not all powers are rated equal. Now we did have a product later called the ultimate powers book. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've seen that or use that in your game. Well, it wasn't part of the original. It actually came out of one of those weird happenstances. One of our editors, Karen Boomgarden, her boyfriend, came into the office because we had all the comic books. We would get all the comic books that Marvel was putting out. We were on their mailing list. And I would, there would be these file folders filled with comic books that would be circulated around the office. So people got a chance to you know read comics. And since we had all the comics, he was working on a list of every comic superpower. So nice. he'd come in and camp out and go, go through comics. Oh, there's someone I haven't seen before. And he'd start writing them down. And my boss, Mike Dobson, saw that and, and said, this would be a great product. We're going to do it. And so that's how Newt ended up doing the Ultimate Powers book. That was a little later in the in the arc, and I had moved on to other things. But that's one reason the big book of superpowers came about by accident, because my boss found someone in my office reading all my comic books. Yeah. So, and I should mention, the judge gave us secondary powers after a few mm -hmm. sessions. Okay. And actually, the random power that I was that I felt like I was stuck with, which was thermal, but I'm like, I, I see how it's useful, and I'm like, okay, so I'll be kind of a rogue because I can be reconnaissance, whatever. Right. And he said, you get a secondary power now, but it has to relate to your first power, to the random Ooh, one. And yeah. I, and so I'm like, okay, well, I can see 
heat, I want mm-hmm. to be able to control heat. So I can now right. heat up a, a gun in somebody's hand. So this power that I didn't think was that it, like I started to come around to and all of a sudden it's like, this is a character that actually makes some sense. Some level of sense. Yes. That, I think that's great. <laughs> and, I, and I had to work within those parameters. And so mm-hmm. is that the normal level system or how did, how did character progression work? Character progression works with, you know, get a whole bunch of karma and spend it. Your judge was basically expanding out. It sounds like he was doing something on on his own, which is cool. But again, that fits with the Marvel Universe, where they're suddenly finding new ways of using powers. I think it was John Byrne, basically, the invisible woman, could basically, you know, create a cylinder of invisible force. And then she would suddenly be able to topple the cylinder, and now she can fly effectively. We call them power stunts, but basically you're evolving your character along and getting better with what they can do with their abilities. More recently, they X-Men had secondary mutations, which means we want to change some of their powers. Right. So, for better or worse. For better or worse. We're not bitter, mind you. <laughs> but the idea of, you know, continuing to evolve your character and generating it over time is part of the Marvel Universe and part of their continuity as characters grow and develop. Okay. So the karma point system was a spendable experience point. So therefore, it was an experience point you could, you basically could not level up per se, but you could basically use it to expand your abilities. Okay. You can kind of buy additional powers mm-hmm. is one thing you can do with it. And I think we had improved stats as well, but I'm not sure. Okay. I'm going to have to do that because I have poor something. Because all the stats are rolled, right? Yeah, if memory serves, it is easier to basically raise poor stats to good than to say monstrous to unearthly. Because I think we tie it in with the number. Now, I'm pulling from memory and it's 30 years old, so... Right. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. If it's wrong, whatever. We'll figure mm-hmm. it out. And that makes sense to increase from a, a very low level. I've always thought that that made sense, too, where it's you know, it, it's easier to get from level two to three than it is from 12 right. to 13. It should be it should be much easier to get from two to three than it is from 12 to 13. Right. Uh, but I, I, I did I did the numbers for like first edition and, the, and it just the arc is so slender, yet it becomes so tough as the numbers go up to basically make that next level. And again, mm. one thing fifth edition does is the idea of, OK, we go through three adventures and we're going to level people up. For third edition, they had a calculation, Jonathan Tweet, basically, that you should be earning X amount of experience each session. And so therefore, over a period of sessions, you will get enough to go up to the next level. That was part of their their maths at the time. Mm-hmm. So they were trying to basically force it through when you're balancing adventures, you should be getting you know the right amount of experience. Okay. And so... Back on the the topic of Marvel, so we have the the karma that we can use to improve our stats. The Mm -hmm. stats in Phase Rip are just a random D percentile roll per attribute, right? Okay. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'd have to look it up, but yes. And then you have that attribute. Let's say it's you rolled a, and I don't have the the number in front of me, uh, but let's say you rolled an excellent. And what that does is, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you have to then go and uh, you want to use that ability you have to roll a D percentile, look mm-hmm. down the excellence column and mm-hmm. see if it's white, which is a failure, green, which is success, yellow, which is better, and red, which is excellent, which would be a total success sort of thing. Basically, uh, and again, there have been a number of different mechanics over the years for how much of a success or how much of a failure something is. Critical hits, you know, you roll a 20 is a great example of an early version of that. And we see a lot of modern games that basically, you know, you roll a fistful of dice and for every five or six you get that says how good what you're doing is working on. Now, for different types of attacks, we did this I think in the basic, but definitely in the the advanced. We basically, if, if I make 
making a throwing attack, red might mean something different than if I'm using a uh, clobbering type attack or if I'm using, you know, a, a ray or something like that. You know, so basically they are having different effects, it's sort of a fine tuning of the table and also opens the door for the judge to be able to say, you know, OK, if you get a red, this is the result you're going to get. And when in opposition to anything, whether a villain or a brick wall, he can just mm-hmm. kind of pick a column and say, right. yeah, unearthly sounds right for punching through right. a cliffside or something. You know, like, okay. And I think, yeah, as, as I mentioned before, I think that that's just genius. Thank you. Absolutely. You're, you're a legend and that's, and this is one of the many reasons why. And so you said that you'd played around with pass fail and eventually settled on the, the four colors, right? The four colors. Uh, interesting, interesting thing there is those four colors is because my, my father is colorblind. So I was very aware that I wanted to make sure that if you were colorblind, you could still use the tape. Well, that's nice of you. So, and that's, we, we worked out with the, you know, with production and figured out, you know, what colors would be best and how they would contrast. And that's why we ended with the traffic light colors, you know. Oh, I suppose, yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that, but being partially colorblind myself, I yeah, yeah, I can easily use it. So okay, and eventually you ended up writing some comics for Marvel. Is that correct? I ended up writing comics for DC. Oh, okay. I have that wrong. I'm sorry. Well, I did write. I did write a Marvel tie-in novel for Dragon Quest, I think, which was one of our uh, games that has a video attached to it. It was one of our big box games in the later years, and that was published by Marvel. I think I've got copies downstairs. But I did Forgotten Realms and AD&D comics for DC. This was a different license. We were talking about, you know, can we do comic books? And DC expressed interest. I think they came to us, though I'm not sure, you know, how the initial meet occurred. And... We did a Dragonlance uh, series. We did a AD&D series. We did a Forgotten Realm series eventually, and that was what I worked on. We did one called Gamma Rodders, which was based on a gamma world with giant kaiju hamsters, among other things. Basically, they're these giant monsters that are all, you know, like, you know, spiders and squirrels and, and everything. And they love that idea. So that became a book. And the AD&D book was set in the Forgotten Realms, which was one of our primary, you know, worlds at the time. Mike Fleischer wrote the first four issues, set up all the characters, and then he was done. Don't know why. So I did an audition, and the story that I wrote ended up in issues 9 to 12 of the AD&D book. And on the basis of that, we launched the Forgotten realms book which ran 24 issues uh with rags morales as the artist for most this is one of his early jobs and he's just you know he does wonderful work and i'm I'm incredibly happy with him over the years he's just been he's a delight but it was the type of thing that dc liked it because they could get those stories approved in advance because i would write the story up and i'd give it to my boss and he'd say okay and i did this freelance i did this out of house it would take me you know a couple weekends to write a story and then a couple weekends to you know i get the art and then a weekend to basically draw in all the word balloons and basically say what goes goes into all the word balloons. It was a you know, Marvel-style production, but it was a good series. It, it got a lot of good uh, reviews, and I was very happy. Its sales were like in the Captain America Wonder Woman category. Not great, not X-Men Batman, but not, you know, not horrible. Nice. And so earlier when you said that you had written a villain for Marvel, that was a villain yeah. that was in the, or, or sorry, that, was in was the role-playing was, game, not the comics? Our initial modules were 16 pages long. Okay. At a time when we were actually for D&D modules, we started doing 32 pages. One reason we did them is the contract stated that we had to have 
X amount of product out within the first year. But it was unclear if they were talking calendar year from when the first release or a full year from release. So we had to release a lot of stuff early on <laughs> so we could be because we weren't sure and we didn't want to ask. So we did a lot of 16 page adventures, which, you know, the original D&D giant series is like eight pages long and again it was a great working relationship i got a john byrne cover out of for, for alpha flight and for uh, a fantastic four adventure this this was this was really really cool we got known marvel artists doing our covers for us a lot of our interiors were done by jeff butler who uh worked on the badger and green hornet so you know he came on board as our comic artist for you know we have great artists during this period. We have Elmore Easley, Caldwell, Tim Truman. Um, I'm going to miss one, and, and they're going to feel bad about this. And Parkinson, Keith Parkinson, late Keith Parkinson. But Jeff joined us up, and he was you know, really, you know, really great at this. But for the Alpha Flight Adventure, yes, I created a bad guy named Cascade, and he had he had hydro powers because, of course, you know, you're in Quebec. <laughs> so I, I did write like I have. I think I've only written one superhero comic and that was a superman adventures book for dc it was their younger dc uh superman line i guess started my uh three nieces well, that's very nice of you was that so was that after you had left tsr then that was after i left tsr but as far as as far as the development of the game do you remember how the the play testing went was there any any interesting uh, stories there we had we did play testing in-house with the other designers basically checking the tables making sure the numbers work that was good and then they took the game, the manuscript that we had, and they put it in front of some, I don't know, junior high school students. You know, left them alone in a room with it and turned the video camera on, and they took a video of it. Then they tied me to a chair and made me watch the video. And I'm watching the kids stumbling through the, uh, through, you know, trying to understand what a role-playing game is and trying to make it work. And they did a real good job for it. So that was a relief. But, oh, that was a real tough uh, playtest to watch. You're, you just say, oh, my God, they're going to do that. No, no, you're, you're doing that wrong. No. <laughs> so... <laughs> So yes, we did play test and we play test with our target market. So after that, were there significant changes you had to make to the game or just to how things were described? How things were described, basically. And again, Steve Winter did a fantastic job as far as, you know, basically making it as clear and eloquent as it was. Okay. Were there any failed experiments as far as things that you ended up having to leave out of the game that you recall or anything like that? Stuff that just didn't work? Not that I remember. Like I said, we went through a number of different versions of the table before we ended up, you know, with what we had. But it was, it was pretty straightforward as far as it almost ended up being called Marvel Comic Book Heroes. Someone in marketing said, you know, well, when you, I asked a bunch of people what they said when we said Marvel, they said comic books. So we should be Marvel Comic Book Heroes. So I ended up spending like about two weekends going to hobby shops in Rockford and Milwaukee and Chicago and asking people about that as a name and basically fought my way back to Marvel Superheroes. Okay, so the the reactions were not positive. The reactions was comic book heroes, sure, I guess, but they I, I gave them like Marvel heroes, Marvel superheroes, Marvel comic book heroes, and people like the Marvel superheroes name better. Plus, there was a logo already we developed out of what one that Marvel had. Sure, and so and I guess the target audience would know who who Marvel is. Yeah. All right. Is there anything in Marvel or Phase Rip that you recall that you're most proud of? Thing that stands out as you know, obviously the table is a great accomplishment. Is there anything else that stands out from it? The table. The area movement, the karma system, all three of those are things that I'm very happy with the way they turned out. And as far as thinking in panels and that sort of thing, so how long is a, is a round? A round is a panel. Oh, we were talking about failures a moment ago. We laid out the maps 
and it's not not a New York map, but it was basically with blocks and everything. And you know, New York has long blocks and short blocks, but every block is square on our maps. So it's sort of a it's, a it's a fantasy New York in the fact that it's got you know it's got a different layout than the real New York does. And I also discovered I got the streets and the avenues wrong. Oh, okay. The avenues are supposed to be north south, and the the streets are you know east west. And I had it the other way around on the maps. Did you go to New York at some point? Not until after publication. Okay. And then it was per New York Toy Fair. At that time you would go to the Javits Building, which was uh, the toy building right next to Javits Center, and companies would rent office space there year-round New York prices for the two weeks that was Toy Fair, when all of the buyers would come to New York and they would basically tour all the offices and you'd be setting up. And I was there one year when we had like the set from the Honeymooners set up in the office because we were doing a Honeymooners game. And so we had the original set from the 1960s basically there. You know, people get their picture taken and the rest of that. So you had all the buyers would come through and they'd take the tour. We would show them stuff and we would demonstrate it. Mike Cook did encounter Stan Lee and got an autographed copy of Marvel Superheroes, which he made out to my, my good friend Mike. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I did not get into the Marvel offices until, you know, after we had, you know, got everything launched. Okay. Apparently, I mean, Marvel must have looked at the product before you printed it, right? Oh, yes. They, they had the approval process and everything. And that went, again, surprisingly smoothly. Nobody picked up on the map? No one picked up on the map. No. They were cool. A lot of licensing in at that time was you know lunchbox licensing of we're gonna make a lunchbox here or here are our pictures of spider-man okay we'll put these pictures on spider-man looks good let's go the fact that there's so much detail and background and lore involved in doing a role-playing game i think was a bigger challenge than they had uh, anticipated it's, it's much more common now you see a lot of you know a lot of companies lucasfilm and everything have their their big bibles that basically this is the truth but for a lot of places it's you know these, these are the images we want to portray meaning that the the amount of information they had to supply you with was not what they thought they they supplied us with much more information than they thought they were going to at the start i believe okay and they were very good about it i like i said they, they sent a guy over to jersey to pick up the art which was you know a cool thing and so when they decided to license with tsr i mean they must have been aware of the success of D, right yeah mm -hmm. and so but they just weren't familiar with the scope it was a different universe it was a different uh, we, we were making games they were making comics and they didn't live in the same space and the games were like a new thing. I mean, basically, there was they would do a, a Fantastic Four game with Pressman, and you, they'd approve the board, and they approve the figures they use, and that would be it. Uh, the idea of being able to justify, figure out what the tr the Russian translation of Crimson Dynamo is, is something that was you know more of a challenge. And they had a guy who worked there who basically was fact checking me all all the way along. You had to figure out the Russian translation of Crimson Dynamo. Krasny Dynamo. Yeah, I know about that because they mentioned it in a Marvel Age fan. Fanzine. They had a, fan, a monthly fanzine to promote their stuff, and they say, "Here's what is happening at a day in Marvel." And this individual is tracking down the Russian translation of Crimson Dynamo. Huh? And I got that from the official handbook. So okay. So if they had called me, I would say, "This is where you find it." I was at the printer when we ran the first press run because Marvel had not approved the legal statement yet. So I was there at the printer. Basically waiting for the approval for the legal statement to change it if need be. 
So therefore, they could they so they we could run the presses. So so you had to to, to change the product. It basically, it would be a case where if they had made had changes that they wanted to make, I would make them on the typesetting machine, and <laughs> we put the new uh, slug into the uh, layout and run that press. All right, and uh, did they yeah, make any changes, or did they, they just... no change? Thank God they made no changes. I was I was going to be doomed <laughs> if I had to you know do that, but I was there <laughs> when we ran because and this is a thing that these all the old days, you know, the type of thing of you know like you know. It gets sent off to a professional printer, and they they send back galleys. And you know, with us, it's blue lines, and we're checking everything. But this type of thing that a lot of it was, you know, winging a prayer. When we started uh, figuring out what was going to go into the box, I went down and had a long talk with Mike Martin. And at that point, he had a list of what every component cost in the game, whether it was a 16-page self-cover booklet or a 64-page black and white with a four-color cover. The most expensive component was the box, which was a simplex box. And he had a price list. And we went down and I spent an afternoon and we horse traded to figure out what we could afford to put into the box to sell it for the particular <laughs> price point that we were looking at. And at one point he, he did tell me, and the original box set had these little sheet of miniatures of the characters, of the main characters, uh, Captain America and, you know, Captain Marvel and, and, and Spider-Man and everything. And, you know, he said, I can get you a custom for cheaper, of that size for cheaper than a big sheet of standard miniatures, of standard counters, of chits. And so that's how we ended up with that small collection of, uh, of counters in the original Marvel set is because, you know, because we basically, and again, we were doing things for the first time. We had not standardized what goes into a box. We brought it in under budget and that was great. And we got a lot of cool stuff in the box as a result. Okay. And that leads very well into my next question, which would be what comes in that box? What does the average group of players need to play this game? It came in that box. I believe it had the dice again. Uh, and it, did it have the crayon? It may have had the crayon. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. But what I talk about is back in the back in those days, you'd get the box and you'd have the dice, and the dice would just have carvings, but they wouldn't be filled in. And you'd get a white crayon, and you'd basically <laughs> fill in the fill in your dice. Was that usual? Uh, for TSR, it was yes. Okay. Dice technology didn't catch up, you know, for quite some time but we had counters we had a map we had a color map this was something that was new for us is to basically make a uh, uh, an eightfold map that was color on both sides four over four color this was a new thing for us we weren't doing that up to now you go back to top secret or you might get uh, boot hill and there might be a fold out map so this was something that we uh, really pushed for and the maps we produced were made to fit together so if you got other box sets you'd get, be able to build you know like a, a city eventually out of most of them because they all fit together the streets lined up and everything but you know, we had a, a 16 page adventure day of the octopus we had a think a 32-page player's book and a 64-page judge's book. And I think that was, I think I'm, I'm quoting the numbers and I'm just trying to pull from memory. And that was it. And that was, that was the box. That was the basic set? That was, the, that was what became the basic set. It wasn't called basic set back then because we mm -hmm. didn't know we were going to do another one. We did the advanced set, uh, which is the blue box. And I have the art piece from uh, Jeff Butler hanging on my wall from that. Awesome. Basically, he, he did the did the character art and then they basically transferred it onto a plastic sheet and then like an animation cell painted it from the back and then mounted it over that grid work. It was a it's a beautiful piece and I've got it hanging in my office here. 
Excellent. And so, and was the advanced, was the advanced set then much the same as far as composition? As far as content, uh, well, it was expanded. It mm-hmm. had, the books were larger. I, we expanded the table out to chef shift X, Y, and Z and beyond because we had the beyonder by that point, <laughs> Secret Wars. I at a convention, James Shooter, Jim Shooter basically had to tell me how Secret Wars ended because it hadn't come out yet. And I had a deadline. <laughs> to write the adventure for it in two weeks. So he <laughs> was very, very accommodating. And we had a long chat and I, we worked it all out. So we did the secret wars, uh, the comic series, turned it into a game product and got that out. So, but when I was writing it, I had no idea how the, how the, how the adventure was going to finish, but uh, yeah, we, we expanded out for the events and then we came back and we did another basic set that was labeled basic set a few years later. That was a reprint of the original, obviously. Uh, I think it was a re. It was, it was a revision. I don't think it okay. was a reprint. It, you know, covered the same topics, but I think we, you know, basically made another pass through it. And then the Ultimate Powers book was an official TSR product. It's not yes, something. It was. That, okay. And those were 128 square bound. We did like you know, big book of X Men, Children of the Atoms, and then we did like a Fantastic Four one. Comic book games lend themselves to monster manuals. I mean, basically, because everybody wants to see what the stats are for their favorite characters. You had to invent some of those stats yourself, obviously, yes. right? Some of those we had. Some of those we were guessing at. Some of those, mm-hmm. you know, we, we basically were looking at the comics and trying to say, well, he does this here and he's fighting spider because everyone fights Spider-Man. And that gives a good feel for, you know, is he more dexterous than he is? Is he stronger? Okay, we've got some some abilities are fairly stable. Usually the answer to the question of who would win a fight, the Hulk or Thor, was it depends on whose comic it is. Home nice. ground, home ground advantage. <laughs> All right. Nice. Right. And so obviously your Marvel influenced some games going forward at TSR. Mm-hmm. Zeb Cook tried to make a universal system out of it at one point, I believe, or it was heavily influenced. Heavy, heavily influenced. I mean, basically it, it's pulling the concept of the universal table and bringing it and advancing it. Yeah. Like Conan, Indiana Jones, a Gamma World version. You know, you could see them as being linear descendants from Marvel superheroes. Okay. Did it directly influence any of the games that you would go to work on? Any any of your future projects? Ooh. I'm working my way through this. I, not really. Okay. Not, I mean, it was there, there were great mechanics. And I'm very proud of them. But, you know, the, the situation did not arise for us to use them again in that type. I think it would be Gamma World probably. had a, There have been like five, seven versions of Gamma World now. But one version basically used a universal table. and We basically evolved it out of what we had. But, you know, by the time I got back to WotC, you know, we were basically doing a lot of stuff that was D20 based. As opposed to, you know, creating an entire new system for, you know, the new game. Though later on they did the Marvel Superhero Adventure game which they had mechanics were more of a card-based type thing. Bank Selinker was involved in that, which was a sort of like a successor. So, you know, we weren't coming back to that Marvel. We were doing a different Marvel at that point with a different system. And that was under Watsy, not TSR? That was also, that was under Watsy. That was the Watsy. I seem to remember that being the Wizard of the Coast years. Okay. And it's, I mean, there's been Marvel superhero games since then too. I mean, yeah, they published yeah. them in the 90s, I think. <laughs> and, and there have been, in fact, Margaret Weiss, company was involved margaret weiss publications was involved in one for uh, a couple years so they they've been they've done ones with stones and they've done new versions
versions. And it's very nice because, you know, whenever there's a there's a review, they basically go back and say, and how does this compare to the original? And that's nice. It's nice being able to be the, to be the first one in, to be able to, you know, do that. I had one reviewer who, when Marvel came out, he gave a very, the original Marvel basic set came out. He had a very mild review. Wasn't wild about it. It was just like, yeah, it's, it's okay. It does superheroes. It's kind of for younger people, it's not really in my, my area. It's, it's got this rah-rah, you know, Stanley type of uh, approach, you know. And when the advanced set came out, he did another review of it, saying, yeah, it's, it's got good stuff and it's got, it got you know, it, it basically is a more advanced set. But I really miss that rah-rah voice that they had in the original. <laughs> <laughs> All right, true believer. <laughs> All right. So did you get a chance to play it much after you published it? Yes both from a personal level and also from a running demos at conventions. We would go down to the Chicago Comics Convention, which was at the Rosemont ho- Hotel in Rosemont, Illinois at the time. And I had my little booth and I would basically be running 20-minute combats with people. And we were doing the miniatures. And I got like a whole bin of Wolverine miniatures, white metal miniatures. And if you played the demo, I gave you a little miniature. So somewhere out there, there are hundreds of these little white metal uh, miniatures of Wolverine from the from the game. So it was basically a demo thing. It was basically doing so I did a lot of demos. And personally, I've done a few since then, but not nearly as much. I haven't played Marvel for oh my goodness, years, more than a decade. I've just been involved in other other things. Sure. I mean, you've you obviously have a very storied career since then, so if you ever want to jump in on Wednesday nights, I'm sure we could we could add you. So um <laughs> Okay. I, I wouldn't tell the judge either. I'd just say this is our you buddy Jeff. And see what... This is Jeff. He's just hanging out, man. Hey, man. Good to see you. <laughs> oh, he would. It would. Yeah. He's real good, though. He's a real good judge. But good. Um, yeah. And, um, that's just, and that's the thing that really impresses me is that, you know, I, I go to conventions and people are still playing Marvel and they're still enjoying it and they're still, you know, updating all the characters. And it's really got that, you know, hallmark of uh, it's been tested by time uh, and people like it, which makes me very, very happy. It has withstood the test of time. I mean, you look at you look at D&D. We've redone it five times. Five and times. This, mm-hmm. this doesn't need any like it's, you know, just came out perfect essentially <laughs> and so do you have any particular memories from playing it any particular any particular characters that you were fond of or campaigns that you ran or anything like that that come to memory in marvel yes i was running one i actually ran a game for peter david who a marvel writer did the hulk yep. did a whole a whole bunch of stuff and we were running a fantastic four adventure and he was you know working very hard to get around the whole murder world thing and it was great to watch him just you know coming up with cool stuff for you know like okay this is how i'm gonna i'm mr fantastic i'm going to seep through the wall here the wall plates where it's pried up a little and get into the back circuitry and rewire it so (laughs) i thought that was great i really liked that one excellent yeah that's that's a great story Mm -hmm. so did you have any superheroes that you generated or anything that, that you remember i did not generate a lot of since i was the judge I was pulling from a lot of Marvel history. At one point, what I, what I did, and I should scan these eventually. So they're in a box downstairs somewhere. After we had an adventure, I would make a cover. And what I do is I would take this thin onion skin typewriter paper, and I would trace over a cover of Marvel Comics. <laughs> 
<laughs> and change all the characters to reflect the characters in our game. Uh, the the original characters in your game. The the, the characters from our game. So you know, so giant man was big man on campus. You know, and that sort of thing. You know, from his purple suit. Is that from college years or from the, That's the, from phase the college years? That's from okay. the college years. That's from the college years. So yeah, we had a lot of good times with it, with the, with the gang for that. Cause it wasn't, it was not a very serious game when we were playing it at in college. And I would say that my moderating style, even since then tends to being more the, uh, having a few laughs. Would your college self have been able to imagine that this, that this was eventually going to get the official stamp of approval from Marvel and end up in print? No clue. No clue. I mean, literally, this was this. We had just wrapped a major adventure, and we were, you know, looking for, you know, what what are we going to do, do this week? So I'm 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 just completely surprised about how well it's all worked out. Go back in time and just hand your college self a copy of, you know, <laughs> Marvel superheroes. Like just uh, so you know, like mm-hmm. no. just so you know, <laughs> no pressure, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, do you have any? future plans for marvel or phase rip at all i do get contacted occasionally about do we ever think about doing another draft another version of it i i have none but it it, it pops up back of the brain and if i did it probably would be for another extant license as opposed to creating a superhero universe from the ground up a lot of people have done that and it's been they've been some very good examples uh mutants and masterminds from uh steve uh kenson Mm -hmm. comes to mind immediately i would probably look at something like astro city i think that kurt busiak's books are excellent and it'd be interesting to see how that appeals because you know comics evolve they change over time what we were writing was was adventures for the mid 80s for the comics and in the 90s they had a different flavor and in the turn of the century in 2000s they they had you know a different flavor again and right now they're caught up in a lot of epic material everything is big larger than life and bigger so mm-hmm. it'd be a diff- very different game if we designed a new marvel superheroes now do you think you'd have to make any changes to the system base system no but i want to address some things that i don't think worked out as well i think i'd use popularity for example and wealth, I think, are mechanics that can be further expanded on. Okay. And see how, you know, that evolves. I probably would keep the same ability scores just because that feels, you know, right. But I'd probably take a good hard look at them before making the changes. It's got a fun <laughs> ring to it, too, you know, phase rip. It's just fun to say. And here's an interesting thing from Marvel superheroes, there's a descent line through naming, you know, having buckets of uh, the abilities poor, good, feeble, you know, uh, excellent, etc. They went through a system called fudge which in turn was sort of an ancestor to the fate system mm-hmm. so that's sort of like a like grandkid i think of game design as a conversation and you design something and someone looks at it and says that's nice but i can do better and well this is how we're going to change it so you can see the evolution of games and how we talk about them and what mechanics we use as we go down the list basically as time passes and new people come on board and they bring their ideas yeah i Couldn't agree more. I think that's a wonderful sentiment. All right. Well, with that, Jeff, if you're okay to move on, I do have one more question for you, and that's where should listeners go to find you? I have a blog that I've been running for some 20 years called Grub Street, mm-hmm. G-R-U-B-B-S-T-R-E-E-T, grubstreet.blogspot.com. You will find occasionally game information there, but more often book reviews, theater reviews, and collectible quarters. Collectible quarters. Collectible quarters. I, I got caught up with talking about the design of the America the Beautiful series like 
15, 16 years ago and basically have been finally got to the end of the second series and I'm done. I'm not doing any more collectible quarters, but basically I was reviewing the state quarter series. Nice. And when you say theater, do you mean live or? Live theater. Nice. A lot of theater, uh, the Seattle Rep, Burian Actors Theater. There's a lot of large scale and small scale theater out here and I do a lot of reviews for that as well. Do you have a theater background? Uh, no. Well, kinda. I did Straw Hat Theater. My mother-in-law was a director in Pittsburgh of a small theater and they needed people to play parts in arsenic and old lace and 10 little indians so i got to play the you know the ancient general macarthur i was wargrave ah okay one of my other one of my other uh, dms was uh, wargrave back from the uh, uh, when I, we uh, started designing for uh, the open yeah there's a picture out there of, of us and kate was the maid so yes i have been blooded by theater i write plays actually in my spare time i've had one that's had a reading but nothing else has gone forward yet everything's in rewrite but that's sort of what i do for enjoyment doesn't have a lot of pressure attached to it doesn't have deadlines so mm-hmm. I, I i i play with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, theater so. well let me know if anything goes up i'd love to if i if anything ever sees the light of day i'll call <laughs> okay excellent <laughs> please do well jeff it's been a real pleasure talking to you did you have any other final remarks before we go i'm good with it we've got the age cadre ahead of me the designers who were you know published and important are passing on we're losing them they're not in good health and I, I think it's, you know, important to, you know, get the stories in before, you know, it's too late for us as well. So thank you. Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, this is going to continue on the, the, the tales. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Jeff, for giving me so much of your time. I've really enjoyed talking with you and I know our listeners are going to love your stories as well. And you'd be welcome to tell any more tales that you'd like before we end. Oh, you, you know, I can keep going. So it, it, it's just been... A lot of fun, what I've been able to do for the past, you know, 40 years. So, so I'm, I enjoy it. I do put on my resume, you know, I build worlds for a living. Thank you again, Jeff, for stopping by the Guild Hall to share your tales about Marvel superheroes and the good old days in Lake Geneva. Marvel superheroes phase rip is an amazing system, being both remarkably accessible and incredibly interesting. We believe that all listeners should truly visit ClassicMarvelForever.com to learn the mechanics and start playing this game. The fate of the world may depend on whatever unearthly powers you roll for yourself. Before we go, we at DDG Pod need to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. Logo design for our show was done by Elijahist. Additional artwork provided by Hodag RPG. Special thanks this week to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast, and also to Aaron, Ed, Rickolas, and Gavis for saving the world on Wednesday nights. And thank you again to our listeners. If you are enjoying the show, please rate and review DDG Pod on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That concludes our fourth episode of Dungeon Designers Guild. So, all you fire breathers and true believers, we escaped again. But remember, next time, we might not be so lucky. <laughs>